This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest today is Verdell Wright, co-host of the upcoming podcast, The Dell and Jess Show. In this conversation, Verdell and I talk about growing up in the Seventh-day Adventist tradition, asking big questions at an early age, the difficulties of attending church when you're seminary educated, depression, sexuality, Christian atheism, and religious humanism. It's a wide-ranging conversation, but I hope you listen through to the very end. In that final section, Verdell talks about his work in highlighting black queer voices in the church and elsewhere, and what we can all do to highlight and support those voices, including financially, emotionally, and inviting and including them into events and elsewhere. Be sure to follow the the, excuse me, the Dell and Jess show on Twitter at Dell D E L L A N D J E S S, and follow Verdell at Mister. MR, that's, <clears throat> excuse me, that's M at MR for Mr. underscore right away. W R I G H T A W A Y. You can also follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Exvangelical Pod. I just started using Instagram stories to post some stuff on Instagram, so check it out there. You can also support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Exvangelical Pod. For a dollar a month, you can join the X community, which is our private Facebook group. My thanks to Kendra and Amanda for your recent support. Finally, hurry over to the iTunes store and rate and review the show. That helps people find the show. Thank you to Joy the Artist for your recent review. All right, let's get into it. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Exvangelical. I have with me this week uh, Verdell Wright. He is... One of the co-hosts of the upcoming podcast, uh, De- The Dell and Jess Show. Welcome to the show, Verdell. Hi, good to be here. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Um, I appreciate you reaching out to me, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So let's start um, just hearing a little bit more about yourself. What area of the country, or where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Um, my parents are from there. I was actually... Well, I don't think um, I can qualify myself as a military brat, um, I, I don't think. But my dad was in the Air Force um, before I was born. And so I was actually born in North Carolina. Um, and then we moved to Montana. And my parents are from Asbury Park, New Jersey. And so we moved there. Oh, and okay. I've been there ever since. Okay. So always been on the East Coast there in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, was it just you and your parents? Do you have any other siblings or any other... People, any other family that you either moved or are close with there? Um, I have one. Well, my parents are still in New Jersey. Okay. Um, I have one younger sister, um, and her and her husband 
and her two kids live in North Carolina. Gotcha. So what was it, what was it like uh, growing up, moving around, and then sort of settling in New Jersey? Um, what, starting just really with your, your sort of church background, what was, what was that part of your life like? Well, you know, I don't, like I said, I think it's, I was three, I think, when we finally settled down in New Jersey. So I remember, I remember, like, some of it I have vague memories of, um, but it's nothing, anything substantial. Like, I remember, like, there are certain little things I remember here and there, um, but it's not like I have a long, like, I, I would say that my most of my conscious memories sure. are of Asbury Park, New Jersey, gotcha. very soon. I probably think that my earliest memories probably go back to right before we were getting ready to leave, if, if I could guess. Um, but in terms of church background, I mean, I didn't grow up in church. I grew up around church. I think that's a better way to put it. Um, being African-American, um, a lot of us have deep connections to church, whether we go or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I found out later on that my dad's family is was Baptist, and even like the the church that they all went to is still there. Um, several of my dad's family members have been buried there, have had been funeralized there because of them having member membership. Um, on my mom's side, my grandmother was a Seventh Day Adventist, um, and so that has a whole nother like unique spin on things, and so. Um, the, the times that I did go to church with her, um, it was around a theology that many other people did not have around me. And it was around, um, it, we, we were getting into different type of ethnicities. And so not only were a lot of people black, but they were Jamaican um, mm-hmm. from islands and things like that. And so um, my first understandings about the Bible and God and all of those things came from the perspective of, you know, Seventh day Adventists, because I would get those lessons. Um, from my grandmother. Okay, uh, that's that's really uh, that's very both of those things are are very interesting. Starting just with the the Seventh Day Adventist um, part, I I have had one other guest that grew up um, in this that tradition, Akisha McKenzie. I think you may know her from Twitter. Um, yes, I know her. Yep, she's a good friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. So she she comes from that background as well, and uh, does have the Jamaican connection as well her her parents are from Jamaica and moved immigrated to the UK um but uh so so that that part um you mentioned that it, it was it had different parts of either the African American experience or other cultures um how did that can you tease that out a little bit and how that really began to form you and impact you from that sort of cultural perspective well, I, did, I didn't grasp it then, I think, being younger. Um, my moral focus when I was younger, the times that I would go to church um, with my grandmother, with well, for my mom's mom, I called her Nana, um, my, my times going with her, I usually didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I usually did not like church. I usually found church to be boring and loud for no reason and <laughs> And it just, I just didn't get like the whole setup to me usually was just like, oh my God, this is really terrible. When is, when is this going to end? <laughs> um, and even in, and, um, when I used to go to vacation Bible school, because I mean, uh, you know, my, you know, money is tight and things like that. And there were a few times when the vacation Bible school at my grandmother's church, um, was, you know, one of the few free things you could drop your child off to do in the summer. And so I would mm-hmm. be taken there. Um, and so it was just kind of like, uh, all right, you know, um, I, I just I just didn't get a feel for it. But 
um, I always liked the Bible stories. I always liked, um, I remember getting a, a coloring book. It was a huge coloring book. And so it like went through most of the Bible. Like, you know, those, I don't know if they still make them now, but you get those coloring books and it has a picture of like whatever cartoon character and like some type of words on the bottom and you can color the picture. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah. And then, so, yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> My daughter is four. She has lots of those still. They, they still make those for sure. <laughs> okay. I didn't know they still. Yeah. Made yeah. <laughs> this one was particularly huge and I enjoyed just reading little things and, I was always interested the idea of God and this whatever you want to call it that's bigger than that's bigger than big. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that idea, spirituality and what religion meant and how it functioned and what the implications now as I look back always interested me because I would always I would now that looking back, I would get into these debates with my with with my grandmother and I would say, you know, she'd be like, Oh well, we have to turn on the TVs off because we have it's the Sabbath and we have to rest. And I'm like, why? Like, why do you have to turn the TV off the ref? <laughs> um, you know, like, why do you yeah. do that? You know, or or just ideas about, you know, oh, well, when you're dead, you're asleep. And I'm just like, well, Nana, if you're asleep, then why do we put you in the box? If you're just asleep? if you're going to wake up, then why are you then, like, and it, it, you know, again, thinking as a kid would think. But now, in, in, you know, thinking back, I was thinking I was asking some pretty heavy questions. She's <laughs> nowhere near equipped um, to respond <laughs> to those in a way um, that would have even began i mean even today it would not have satisfied anything um, i remember when she was saying how i think not got to be like around the second grade or whatever and the talk of the ozone you know remember back in the day when we were talking about you know there's a hole in the ozone layer yeah, and, all the, yeah. all that, and that was that was the big environmental deal and she said it was because you know mankind it was always mankind um was going up in space where they don't belong and so I asked, well, Nana, what if it's a good reason to go up in this space that can help people? Would God still be mad? And again, like she couldn't, she didn't have the, you know, she just didn't have the capability of conceptualizing um, the world in the ways that my questions were suggesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I see that now, but that, that, I think that was my thing. I always appreciate it and, and it was helpful. But so the, the one thing that I took from what she would say, though, and even though I wouldn't say it the same way now, I think it still had some value then. She said that God is your God is your father. And this is before we had any type of belief or anything that expressed come to the altar, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. She would tell, you are God is your father and God is a king. And if God is a king and you're God's child, that makes you a prince. So you should carry yourself that way. And so that that resonated with me. Hmm. Um, um, that, that, you know, with all of its issues, even with this issue of, you know, God is a king and you're a prince and you rule and all these other things on the flip side of it, I think what, even though she may not have exactly realized it was that we never expressed any faith. We had never said that we believe she treated us as if we were children of God without us saying anything. And so I know that in her mind, she would never have been, she would have never said that, oh, well, God loves everybody. She mm-hmm. treated us in a way, and she treated me in a way as that did not require necessarily some type of theological um, agreement automatically with her. And so I think she didn't mean it, um, but <laughs> that's actually <laughs> well, awesome Yeah, well, that's very interesting. I mean, you... Uh... You have an inquisitive, <laughs> you have an inquisitive mind from an early age, and you're asking these questions. But then you, 
you're able to latch on to something that is um is assuring and it's a it's definitely something that a, a child's imagination can run with you know this idea of you being a prince that's a pretty cool idea for a second mm-hmm. grader you know yeah, and very uh, cool <laughs> and the, <laughs> and the other the other uh, you know the other aspect of that is that you you get some assurance out of it and uh and some assurance even from her just assumption that that you have this place regard and independent of your individual belief which i think a lot of people um a lot of people certainly within you know evangelical sorts of circles probably don't they they probably feel like they're being their beliefs are being examined all the time so was that was that like comfortable comforting thing for you to to have that sort of approach to to her treating you that way i didn't know enough then to account for it i thought that a lot of what she did didn't make sense <laughs> Um, I thought that sometimes her, all of her God talk and God stuff could be overwhelming and a little pushy. Um, but I think that now looking back, her faith is what she had to hold her world together. Mm, mm-hmm. It's what made the world, it, it's some, it's it somehow, it explained the world. It helped her to have hope for tomorrow, all of these things. And, um, a friend of mine said this quote about, things and 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 i think it applies here is that some a lot of times a bad answer is better than no answer Mm -hmm. um and that if you break down a lot of you know her beliefs and what they were these are some pretty bad beliefs like in my opinion like these things are not like these aren't good like these aren't necessarily life-affirming ideas i mean some of them are but there's Mm -hmm. a whole lot that aren't but that was better than falling apart that was better than succumbing to hopelessness. That was better than giving up on life sure. and not trying again. And so even as I think people, you know, like myself, who will can, you know, critique religion, I think it's easy to see that talk about the ideas and not see the real life implications of some of the things that people um, believe. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, this is a really bad answer. Like, this is a bad answer to think that God's going to one day come out the sky and burn up everybody else who doesn't agree with him. And that, you know, this, like, these are some bad ideas. <laughs> yeah. But this idea, as bad as it is, is, I think of it like this. It's if you are on a desert island and you are starving, right? And you all of a sudden find a McDonald's, you're going to eat at McDonald's. <laughs> even though mcdonald's is terrible for you you're going to eat there and it's very easy to say mcdonald's is terrible when i have a grocery store downstairs where i can get fresh fruits and vegetables and and, and organic meats and whatever mm-hmm. but this person has no food nearby and that cheeseburger is the one thing that will give them the strength to walk through tomorrow and mm-hmm. so even and so the the bigger question is to say okay maybe we should instead of talking about their religion maybe we should get them off the island. <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe, maybe instead of talking about their food choices, they need to be in a better location. And I think religion works the same way. I think still we need still need to talk about some of the problems, but I think that when you divorce that from the real life needs that people have, mm-hmm. then I think the critique becomes um, it doesn't acknowledge the humanity in it all, yeah. even though it's problems with it. Yeah, and for some people, where faith is such a bedrock of of their 
coping mechanisms in, in some senses that feels like a direct assault on them, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, the majority of the world is black and brown, and the majority of the black and brown world believes in some sort of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, if you aren't careful, you can slip into talking about religion in a way that becomes racial. Um that isn't helpful, even if there are things that need to be critiqued and discussed. And I think that's something that people often miss is like, you know, like I think like the average Christian now is someone who lives in the global, the, the, the global South, it's brown mm-hmm. skin, and she's a woman. And so what do those implications have when we are talking about things like belief and theology and things like that? How do we hold the fact that, okay, this is a brown woman who's believing these things in the global South and the, you know, the political and social, all those implications need to be kept, you know, churning while someone's talking about how, okay, well, maybe believing in the Bible isn't that smart after all. I think that needs to still be held in tension with that. Mm -hmm. So that's a, um, what you bring up is, is a really, is a really like big and global concern. Um, I, I'm really so I'm just trying to think of the best way to to ask a follow up, uh, because you you gave some good examples of like um, the the um, the most common believer is is someone that is not not like me at all. I'm a cis hetero white straight Christian guy from the Midwest. <laughs> I am not the majority <laughs> by any means, but you know we I uh, but due to centuries of uh, inequality, my sorts of voices have, my sort of voice has been amplified over many, many others. Um, so how does, how, what's the best way to, to keep, to keep ourselves cognizant of that even? Um, and I know that's a broad question and I, 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 I'm trying to find a better way to ask a more specific question, but it's such a big global sort of thing, like you mentioned, that that's just sort of the the place I'm starting here. Well, I think the first thing is to make it more manageable because, you know, neither one of us can do anything that impacts the whole globe like sure. that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I and mean, this is what I tell people too, I think, and this is what I do my best to practice as well, is that when you recognize that the voice and that you're, the position that you have is as the result of privilege that you did not earn and that privilege is exerted at the expense of other people, then you do your best to get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what, how you do that practically is um, to elevate other people, use your power to put other people in places where they could not be necessarily on their own without a huge fight. And so let's say for someone like me, um, let's say, and I mean, I haven't had a chance to do this yet, but let's say I'm pastor of a church and I'm, and there's a women's day. And so, you know, is there a trans woman who can speak on this for this situation? You know, mm-hmm. um, can I ask for one? Um, or let's say, Mickey, let's say if it's, you know, talking about, you know, gay folks and someone invites me and I say, Hey, you know, all the time when you guys tend to invite gay preachers, they always tend to be these cisgendered, kind of masculine gay dudes. Is there someone else you can invite? I have some names. And Mm -hmm. I think the other thing, too, is to actually have relationships with people. You can't ask someone to come who you don't know. And so I 
and and I and I didn't do this as a as a project to like oh let me go collect you know diversities of friends but like I have friends who happen to be trans who are dear friends of mine I have mm-hmm. um you know I have Muslims who are friends of mine I ha- I I intentionally I I'm connected to people in communities that are different from mine so that way I'm not too far away from other people's experiences and I think that when you look a lot of the issues that come down to it is that you know you really don't know anybody in this in these situations and so mm-hmm. it's so easy to have so much to say and ideas like I, I've seen, I know what trans people go through, not on a personal level, but because I've, I'm, I'm their friends. I, I hear what they tell me. I hear their stories. You know, I know what women go through with birth control because I have women who are friends who share their stories. Um, and the list goes on. Like, I have friends who, you know, who have friends who, who family members who have immigrated. And so, again, I don't have the personal experience, but because I'm close with them and we have, like, actual relationships... I have a window into their realities, especially the ones that I won't, that I don't share. Mm-hmm. And so I do my best to say, oh, okay, if there's a panel, well, who else is on here? Or if I don't go, I give three names or just to do something to see, okay, in what ways is my identity somehow taking up space? And how can I use that space to make, to, to, to let other people speak who need to be heard? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's I I totally agree with that. And I think that's speaking from my place of privilege. I mean, that to me is the most honestly the most Christ-like thing you can do is to abdicate any sort of power that's been given to you. Um and and do exactly what you're saying. Um well, actually I I I really do like what what you said there before I go back to sort of your biographical story and everything and, and tying back a little bit more and exploring that. Um I I really liked what you said about just um about really just living with people, getting to getting to know people and getting to know their stories and and having your um <clears throat> having your worldview sort of impacted by that and your heart impacted by that to use like a, you know, a churchy term. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, uh, the thing that I, cause I've benefited from that same exact thing. Uh, knowing, knowing people that are not like me has been the most, the, the best sort of thing. Um, and, uh, there's a quote and I can't remember whether it's Rilke or Rumi, but it's, uh, I live my life in widening circles. Um, Mm -hmm. and that, that to me is, there is like a theological component to it too, because the, the more people, you know, and the the wider array of people that, you know, then your, your theology is going to be impacted by that. Um, and if your theology doesn't change because you don't know anyone new or any, um, then that, that is a detriment to to you and to your, to your faith really. Um, sorry, sorry to go on that little rant there. <laughs> no, it's okay. We kind of went off the deep end though, though, didn't we? <laughs> We're talking about simpler times and we just kind of, oh. uh, uh, died right into the deep stuff. <laughs> oh yeah. But you know what? That's kind of, that's, that's all connected. <laughs> you know, that, that, that has a, that has a through line for you in your life. Right. I mean, uh, <laughs> tying it back to that, it started with these. Uh, these conversations and questions with your with your grandmother um was there anyone else in your life that would that also would engage with you or, or expose you to um church sort of stuff you mentioned that you were you lived around church um 
was there was there any other aspect where you were sort of getting this or asking other people questions any other people your friends or family not really um a lot of i mean there was this one spell in ninth grade when i was like on this super jesus tear and i was just going to like <laughs> do i think somehow in my mind what i understood about jesus was that jesus wanted to help people um, and so I, I remember I had like a little folder and I put on a, what would Jesus do on the front? And so I went around and talking to people and doing good deeds and helping people. It's so funny to think about, about it now, but that compelled me. And I also remember having theological debates, um, with a, a good friend of mine growing up and, um, he was, um, a five percenter. And so he didn't want any, you know, didn't want anything to do with um, what many, many people in my hometown who have the, the, those ideas, you know, the white man's religion and, and all of that. And I didn't. And for some reason, I felt compelled to debate with him. Um, and now looking back, my debates with him were more fueled by the negative things um, that I was told about the group as opposed to the ideas in and of themselves. But that foundation was still there. Um, but there, it was very, like, I, there wasn't really anybody else I interacted with in that way. And religion didn't really begin to become a fuller part of my life until um, college. I will say, though, that a lot of, I mean, I had a kind of a rough childhood, not kind of, it was rough, um, particularly bullying, harassment, all that type of stuff. And it, and it was, it was, um, it was rather intense. Um, particularly for a number of years. And one of the common refrains that I was told by adults was that, you know, God has a plan for you um, because of all of this. And that, you know, people who God does, spe- people who God wants to do special things with go through these inordinately hard times. So you must, you must have a mighty purpose or something to that extent. Um, and that's what I was told, you know, by parents, my aunts, my grandmother, all of that. Hmm. And so, and I think now, as I look back at some of my ideas and theologies or in, uh, in around things like, you know, predestination or even the cross and violence and things like that, it comes from that experience of being told that um, and then undoing the damage from all of all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so but there wasn't any distinct other real influence. I was just kind of around whatever my grandmother might say or. Gotcha whatever I might have read it. She gave me like a Bible and wrote on the front, this is the only book that, that can save your life if you do what God says. Huh. Um, and so I would read some things in there, but again, it's very Seventh-day Adventist, very King James, all of that stuff. Um, but I didn't really begin to dig into religion in a way that was my own um, until college.
and and before you get to college, did, as you, you mentioned, you had a, a rough childhood. Um, was and and that there was a lot of bullying added to that. Was there any sort of like youth group culture that you had to unpack to, or did you sort of sidestep that whole? Thing? I sidestepped all of that. <laughs> um, there was enough to untangle when you had, when I got to college. It was enough to untangle with the young adult groups that I was a part of. It was, <laughs> I couldn't imagine having to untangle youth group stuff too. Yeah, like I yeah. Couldn't. But th- there wasn't none. I mean, you know, like I said, like my parents in and of themselves, we didn't go to church. My mom, I believe, wanted us to go, and she, my mom wanted to sing. My, my family is really musical, mm-hmm. and so she wanted to go and sing in the choir, but they wouldn't let her unless she joined. And my mom wanted us to go, but I was very resistant. Like, my sister wanted to go. I did not want to go. And my dad, actually, I credit him because I think if it was not for him that stepping in and saying something, it'd be different. And he said, don't make him go because if you make him go, he's going to go in a totally opposite direction. And my dad was the same way. Like He was forced to go when he was younger. Mm, um, yeah. And so he was just like, no, don't make him go. Because if you make him go, you're like forcing him to do that when it's really not a requirement. Like, And, and so I think in a lot of ways, like the, the career I have in religion likely would not have happened if it were not for him. To, if, like if I were forced to go to church, I feel like things would have been really different. Yeah. So you, where did you end up going to college where you really started to engage in religion as a topic? Um, I went to Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Um, and so that's, um, I remember um, I was living around a lot of, and, and I, interestingly enough, um, there was a lot of African-American folks on my floor. And a good amen, good number of them knew each other, and they were from, you know, um, you know, um, some similar areas in New Jersey, and they were into church and stuff like that. And so, what happened was, as I got, became friends with them, I began to look more and more into it, and then I kind of got into it on my own. I, I remember going to a non-denominational church that was, um, you know, up the street from the school, um, and it's still there, um, pretty prominent still. Um, um, charismatic, non-denominational um, church, and with the way he explained um, salvation, it was so simple. And I was like, "That's it, sure." <laughs> <laughs> you know, you didn't have to wear, you know, dress clothes, and the music was good, and the people seemed really nice and friendly, and yeah, so it just seemed like you know, because I mean, I think that's the thing. I think I. I was resistant to the the faith of my grandmother because of how restrictive it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and the faith that I discovered at, you know, at that church, it's so their abundant life family worship church is still there. The faith I found there was very expressive and colorful and lively and they laughed and all those other things. Now, what I did not recognize is that under the service that that faith was still incredibly restrictive, um, just in different ways. Um, but of course I didn't realize that then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You never notice things when you're in the midst of it. Right. <laughs> and so it's after, after deep deconstruction or <laughs> contemplation of it. So did you start to study, re- did you start to study religion in college or did, um, or was this sort of your extracurricular sort of stuff that you did, um, on Sundays or other days of the week? I did. I actually got a minor in religion. Um, I didn't feel full throttle enough to 
um, to um, what is it? I didn't feel profound enough to get a major in it, but I had, I guess, for me, like this light bulb moment where I said, I'm going to major in African American studies and religion, and I'm going to teach and preach and all this type of stuff. And so I measured, so like, I'm sorry, I'm talking in circles. So I majored in, minored in religion, and I majored in journalism. And it was in my New Testament classes. I, I took a lot of Jesus-y stuff. I took like world religion. <laughs> I, well, I took world religions. Um, then I took a sociology of religion course, which was, it's a bit too high. I, I don't, I, what did I, what did I get? Maybe a B or a C, but I think ultimately it was a little bit too high-minded for me at that time to really grasp it. I just was kind of there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, the rest were like very Jesus-y classes that I took. So I took a class on Jesus, like academic class on Jesus. And I took New Testament classes one and two. Um, and this is the first time I began to hear things and it didn't really connect with me then. Um, but like, like that, like in New Testament one and two is when, particularly two is like when you hear like, oh, well, Paul didn't write first Timothy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, but it didn't register with me then. I think a lot of the, the culture shock for lack of a better word, that people experience when they hear something like that didn't strike me until way later because I wasn't steeped in church the way that so many other people were when I was younger. Mm. And so now, mind you, hearing that fact or reading, you know, about the Jesus seminar and like, I remember we had to do an actual assignment where we took certain, um, Passages of scripture from the gospels. And you know how Jesus Seminar does, like, you know, they had things where they rated it either red or pink or gray or black, you know what I mean? Yeah, and the likelihood. It was their yeah. like likelihood factor, right? It was uh... Right. And so <laughs> the, the the furthest I could get was gray. And the fact that I could even get to gray, I think, is remarkable <laughs> in consideration because of where I was going to church at the time and things like that. And so my argument was that at best you can only argue that things are gray because nobody was there. Right. Mm. And so on the one hand, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that cost me points because I'm sure I argued that, you know, poorly as someone who was you know, very faithful. But the fact that I would even say gray, being that I went to a church that thought that the Bible was right and true and all of that, that's still like, you know, in, in like reflecting on that is that I still kind of had that critical formation of religion from my earlier years yeah. that allowed me to inhabit a different space than many other people who I still went to church with. Now, of course, I still was steeped in it, so I don't want to make it seem as if, like, you know, I participated and would have said some of the same things, believed for and against most, if not all, of the same thing. And so I wasn't, like, I wasn't functionally different. I don't want to make it seem like I was. Mm-hmm. But there was a willingness to discuss and have questions about things that many other people I went to church with just never thought to or intentionally avoided. Yeah. Yeah. And those, I mean, uh, <laughs> the, the things like learning about first Timothy, uh, learning about like what a pseudonymous author is and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. that throws you for a loop. If it, if it's not part of your faith tradition. And I, I, I don't, I mean, even at the more liberal mainline churches, I don't think that's something that's, you know, broadcast <laughs> i mean they don't even say that in in mainline, in mainline liberal churches you don't even hear people really say that it's like it's kind of like this 
it always surprised me and amazed me, like in seminary when, you know, we really went through it and you really learned that, no, 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 he really probably did not write this. <laughs> and when I got that and it was just kind of like, why didn't anybody, like, I understood why traditional folks didn't say it, but it's like, but wait, why don't y'all say it? Why don't, <laughs> right. why don't the, you know, it's like, it's this, it's this open secret that nobody really want to talk about. It's like, I think between um, that and then, um, you know, Paul not writing, First, Second Timothy and Titus, and probably not Ephesians or Colossians either. And then David and Jonathan, I think, often are the biggest open secret that mm-hmm. everybody knows and everyone sees, but no one really <laughs> talks about. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it really is uh, pretty wild. Um, for for me, like that, that was I didn't I didn't realize how how much of that sort of what you what you call traditional, which I think is correct, like that traditional view of scripture was like um, imbued in me or not even consciously until I started taking new Testament Greek and then learning about those things. It just was, it was just a, uh, like a system shock <laughs> and it, it took a while to, to sort of, um, uh, you mentioned that it didn't, it, it, it sort of had a, a slower effect on you. For me, it was like a combination of, uh, a number of other things, but that, that was not, <laughs> wanted at the time that sort of feeling of of uh of being just uh cast afloat really when when you're taught such a high view of scripture not um not that uh and that's the thing is that even that even what i just said right there high view of scripture that is like that betrays you know this this uh deep sort of experience i had of thinking that that's high and that's the like textual criticism that that mm-hmm. is somehow not high. <laughs> right. I mean, I loved my Bible. Like, listen, when I, when I first, well, first of all, I like to read. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a faith that focuses on reading a book, then you take that really literally. I think the thing is that, and this is where we, I think I differed. People read the Bible, but they don't really read the Bible. Um, and I actually like read it. And so I really want to see what was there. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and again, I still had massive gaps in knowledge because, I mean, I think the one thing that people tend to gloss over is that the Bible actually, I mean, there's some things that are like, okay, well, yeah, this is what it is. Like, you know, love your neighbor. Boom. That's okay. Um, you know, you know, um, love people or things like that. Um, all right. But there are a lot of things that you really wouldn't know unless you went to seminary, unfortunately. There's a lot <laughs> of things that you would yeah. just would not catch. Like, I know, like, if you're reading your Bible and the Bible says, and Ruth placed herself at Boaz's feet, well, you're going to, you don't have any reason to think that feet means anything besides feet. You know, <laughs> um, you don't have any reason to think anything different. Or if you're reading Second Timothy and you're saying, I, and you're reading I, Paul, you don't have any reason to think that someone else wrote this because it's in English and it says Paul. And as you know, as somebody, you know, who took Greek, if you read something like, say, like Hebrews or first, second Timothy in Greek, and then you read something like Galatians or Romans in Greek, you know, it doesn't really read the same at all. Like you can tell blatantly that, okay, somebody wrote the same person did not write both of these. Mm. <laughs> you know, and, and, yeah. and so, but how could the average person access that? Right. Um, how would you know about um, the fact that it's pretty close to impossible to distinguish an ancient Israelite from an ancient Canaanite? 
Yeah. That's not, that, that's not in the Bible. Like you wouldn't know that. And so I think that um, that's something that I think that people don't discuss. And I was like, oh, the Bible is easy to get. No, it's not. Like a lot of what you need to know to navigate this thing is not in the book. Right. Um, you have to get it from somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Or else it's given to you. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, but I think that proves the point is that even the people who have those traditional beliefs, they still have to give people context and things right. to, to back up what they're saying. Now, a lot of it is flawed or, 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 or incorrect. But the fact that you can just pick up the Bible and read it and you'll get it. No, you won't. <laughs> like, you know, you won't. Like, you, like, like you have to make, like, you have to re- to fill in the gaps of knowledge that you have right. for it to make sense. And there's way too many gaps in knowledge. And the way your, whatever version you're reading is translated, like, it, it, it's not strange that people will say, well, the Bible says that homosexuality is wrong when you're, when the Bible, when the, you know, your version of the Bible says homosexuality and it says that it's wrong, but you don't know right. that that was a translator's choice to use the word homosexuality. Right. You don't know that, hey, someone had to decide to use that word and that that word didn't even exist until the 1800s. And so, you know, so yeah. no one, <laughs> the, the, the literal concept of the word did not exist. And right. so someone had to decide to put that there. Because that goes against the idea that, you know, the Bible is divine and somebody made it and it was all done with care. Like, it's, it's not an easy book. Right. It's, just not, it's not that simple yeah. um, as people would like to make it um, out yeah. to be. Yeah, and translators have uh, some more than others. Uh, I'm looking at you, ESV. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have, have agendas. Uh, I mean, the ESV is pretty blatant in their, um, in their you know, uh, complementarian, which is an- anti-women <laughs> and and uh, anti-gay sort of stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, and and that's not something that's commonly known, um, and that's unfortunate. Yeah, it's like they make choices, and I mean, it's Bibles make money. Yeah, they, they do. Lose money <laughs> with stuff like that. Um, then that rolls out. But again, it's like people don't necessarily. I mean, why? Why? You know, and why would they? I think that's the other part too. Is that a lot of people approach? I know, I sure did. You know, I approach my my faith as I want to live the best life that I can. And this seems like the way to make that happen. And so I'm not particularly looking to find out how they made it. I want what it's pointing towards. And it's, this is sure. supposed to help me be my best self. And this is supposed to secure some sort of future for me. And so I'm, I'm it's like if you go to a Tony Robbins, um, you know, empowerment session or whatever you want to call it. You're not really trying to look behind the scenes. You want to know how to shout at the wall and run over the coals and to be the and get your million dollar business started. You don't really want to know the. You're not really there to find out the other stuff. You know. Yeah, that that why question that you asked as a kid. <laughs> you don't really want to know why. <laughs> no. <laughs> so you you go to you decided to go to seminary after all this. What what made you want to do that? Uh, I don't know. Um, so i i left college with the understanding that i wanted i felt the sense of people would call like a sense of call Mm -hmm. um and so i looked into all types of schools and things like that when i was leaving undergrad did not find anything um that's when i was really getting into my very charismatic phase so i was like you know i hop house of prayer 
um, you know, healing and miracles type of thing. That was that phase of my Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And so um, when I I left New Jersey and I moved to the area where, I, where I'm in now, the general area, and so I started getting really more into Bethel and like, you know, Bill Johnson and Randy Clark and um, Jill Austin, who I met, um, all of these types, all these types of folk. And so we're talking like the evangelical gold falling from the sky, limbs regrowing type of, you know, mm. um, evangelicalism. And I was when, you know, it was a long time of joblessness and going back and forth and issues with all of that. But what ultimately happened is one of my fraternity brothers, um, a lot of them were at Howard University, which is in the area, and it's in D.C. And Howard has a divinity school, and I did not know that Howard had a divinity school until he went. And so what happened is I decided that, okay, well, at that point in time, I was trying to figure out what was next with life. And um, I decided that I was going to go there because I wanted to go to seminary and, and start that. And so that's what started it. And so... My intentions for walking into seminary are, were not what I ultimately left with. <laughs> <laughs> that is for sure. <laughs> is that where you felt, uh, I, is that where things, um, the, the sort of common term uh, that people sort of use now is like deconstruction. Is that where you felt like thir- certain things were and were deconstructed that you had co- sort of constructed earlier about your ideas of faith? Yes, but it took it, it it yes it did, but it didn't it wasn't just by virtue of the classes themselves. I okay. actually enjoyed them. Um and so I still had this very bookish thing about me and given you know a lot of I was even though my views were still traditional, I was willing to bounce around in that traditional sense. I was willing to read the text closely and see things that other people might have missed. And so being in a place where you could have that all day was exciting to me. Um, I did not know what I was walking into. I wouldn't say that the conversations threw me off, though. Um, for example, like my very first semester, I had a professor, Dr. Hobson, and everybody was, you know, said, oh, he's wild and whatever, all that other. And, you know, at that time, a lot of what he said, I disagreed with him. And this is from my pastoral care class. And I think it was the very first class. And he wrote, I think the word holy or something on the board. And then he like did something, I think, and then he wrote, he wrote, took holy and he erased the Y and he, and he wrote holistic. And so just his conversations and talking about sex and all of the other things. Um, and even about prayer. And he was like, why do you pray? What, what for? Like the questions that he asked, I had other things for, but they sat with me. And I mean, even today, like I find myself saying like, you know, Somebody asked me, it's like, well, when's the last time you prayed? And I said, I think maybe a couple of times I might have prayed out of like reflex, but like prayer, like what am I, like, it's amazing how the things that he said then that I didn't get, or maybe had other answers for that I'm saying now. And so I think that that jarring sense of hearing other people say things that I automatically did not believe in did not scare me away. Um, I enjoyed New Testament. I enjoyed Old Testament, even when other people around me were freaking out, learning that David really might not have been this great guy after all, <laughs> or, or learning that, that, you know, there's three Isaiahs or all the other, like it didn't bother me. What happened to frustrate me was not seminary, but still being in church while in seminary. That's what did it. 
Um, I I'm definitely that, dig into that. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I, what I found was, I, I it was a part of being a discovery type person that I am. I like to think um, I'm a brain, I guess, in that particular way. Mm-hmm. And so church held very little for me because you go from a place where you crack open the Bible and read a scripture and you talk about the implications and the history and all of that. And then you go to a place where someone's literally telling you what you should think. Um, and so it didn't work. It didn't jive with me. And at a certain point, and this is the part that really took a wrestling for me, depending on what church you're going to, you know, a good semester of seminary and you know more than a lot of pastors. <laughs> You know, um, particularly in the churches that I was a part of, um, you know, not all. There's a good many denominations where you have to get like an MDM and all of that. But, you know, in some charismatic, um, even at, you know, churches like that, mm-hmm. you know, I was in, you know, six months in. I knew more than my pastor about Exodus. You know, six months in, you know, I, you know, I remember being in a in a men's Bible study group and they were reading this book. It was called Maximizing Manhood. And just some of the ideas they have around <laughs> masculinity and whatever, like I was thinking about concepts that no one in my group really addressed, you know, um, not that they ignored it. They just never it never came up for them. And my error was that I thought that questions were good. I was wrong. Um, only certain questions are good. Mm. Uh, and so mm. the singing, you know, I, I, I sang on the praise team and all of that. And so the singing kind of kept me in there for a while. That was, I enjoyed, that was my favorite part. But like, I, I'll never forget, it was a sermon that my pastor preached about sex before marriage. And it was like, you know, why would you go on a vacation trip with the first, with your, you know, girlfriend? Because you know that you're probably going to have sex. And so I was hearing that and I thought to myself, well, how do you know that? And I said, how do you know, like, why do you automatically assume that people would do like, and again, it was very, very, you know, you know, basic level thinking about these things, but I was growing to a place where my spiritual formation in school dwarfed what was happening in church. And so it made church uncomfortable because it was like, okay, dude, like you can't really tell me what first Corinthians says. I know this book better than you. like. I mean, it's like, how am I supposed to take if everything is biblically based and I know the book better than you do? How is that going to work? You know, and I think that's what it came down to. Not that, you know, and I'm not saying to say that someone who doesn't have a seminary degree can't do anything spiritual, anything like that. But the way that, you know, the system was set up at churches that I was in is that the pastor, you know, reads the text and he reads the Bible and, and, and we'll tell you politely but we'll tell you what's the right thing to believe. And I'm like, but that's not, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> like, that's not it. Like, that's not it, you know? Yeah. And I, I had to, um, a professor of mine told me, he had to sit beside and said, Verdell, you are a professional at this. You are, you know, you are in the role as a theologian, um, a Bible scholar at, at, while you're in school. And that, some of some of them just simply are not your peers in this regard. Then mm-hmm. you may not be a pastor, but we we're not going to. We I can't have an honest conversation with you about Moses because you think that Moses wrote Exodus, and you believe that that is the literal truth. 
um, we can't like you really can't tell me what the text says when I know the text thoroughly more more thoroughly than you do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that that really was, is what caused um, a lot of those rifts. Um, I will also say also <laughs> that um, it was church and depression. I think that really um, began to shift how I viewed my faith. Hmm. So where it is, where it is depression, depression enter in and how, uh, how your faith is understood. I, um, yeah, <laughs> let's just leave it at that. Uh, cause I think you did a great job explaining, you know, the, the sorts of conflicts that, uh, that, that can be faced when you learn a hell of a lot more than the, the people that are at the pulpit. Um, <laughs> so, so what was that? Um, what 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 was the role that depression played and and was do you know with time what was sort of causing your depression and what was feeding it well i think a number of things i think one and i remember one of the, my professors um who's a mentor of mine now he is the one who got me to label what i went through as a kid as abuse um, and so, and I was like, maybe what, 24, 25 at the time, maybe I don't even remember. Um, but he, hearing that kind of set me off on a path to deal with that. And so in unpacking all of that, you do, you have that, you also have a person who is dealing, um, on in various ways with their sexuality and trying to process that you also have, you know, you know, being very poor also <laughs> has an impact on that <laughs> as well. Um, and so you had all of those things mixing and jiving together. And so I guess it was just time for some things to to pop off. And reflection, I had suffered from depression uh, before when I was younger. Um, but no one, I mean, and I don't say it's any disrespect to, you know, my parents or anything like that. I mean, nobody really knew anything about that, what that was. You know, no one really had any way of figuring out what that type of stuff is and dealing with it. Um, and so I just really started to fall apart. And I think that I just remember, I remember pulling up to my apartment, um, like say I had a late class or something like that, and pulling up around to my apartment around like 10 o'clock and then looking up and seeing no one there and just feeling like crushed inside and feeling like my apartment was a box and um, feeling like, like just feeling numb, down. And just feel like you can't do anything to escape. And so I put on a lot of weight and, um, you know, and, you know, all of that stuff. And so um, being in that position, one, it caused me to view people differently because that's when I also when I started drinking and I started drinking heavily. Um, I probably at some point should have been in the hospital. I don't know how I avoided it, um, but I started drinking very heavily and, you know, I would be, you know, I would have church the next day and I'd be, you know, recovering from my hangover, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. in the pulpit, or not showering or not shaving, um, things like that. And I just had a breakdown and I had no way of processing this. But I think in that experience, what happened is that when I was able to be confronted with my own quote unquote vices, it caused me to see that, oh, okay, well, the people who I still might have felt these things about, about people who are having all this sex or drinking or doing X, Y, Z, it's, it's an escape sometimes. For them or for you? 
Um, well, it was for me. And so I, what, I could, uh, what I understood then was that this wasn't because I wanted to be bad or evil. It was that drinking all of this alcohol, way too much alcohol, somehow gave me a break from the constant pain that I was feeling. Yeah. And I don't say that to say that, oh, well, if you just get your pain together, then, then you won't want to have sex or drink alcohol. That, that's not what I mean. But in that moment, I understood a different part of humanity that I think I had been closed off from because of my beliefs and my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was um, through that and counseling and all, you know, and that happened for a number, a couple of years, to be honest. And it was through, and it, and it got really bad there for a while. Um, but it was through recognizing, and I, I think I got to a point when I was like, look, this is really bad. And I think I, I was aware enough to know that if this gets any worse, I'm probably not going to be here in a year. Because I felt, I, I could feel myself slipping. And so with the last little shred of awareness I had, I reached out to a professor and he connected me with a counselor and we started doing some work together. And the funny, well, it's not funny like humorous, but the part now is that it was, it started during the summer and usually they don't do intake. And when they did the intake for me, they was like, oh, we might not have any room, but they did the intake and they immediately like, oh no, you can come in today because it was that bad. Um, and it was my counseling and dealing with my depression it wasn't seminary that caused my beliefs to change. It, it gave me the materials to reconstruct my faith, but yeah. it was my depression and having to drag myself out of depression to save my life. Honestly, like this saved my life. I do not know if I would be here if I did not drastically consider my faith and, and worked on changing how I viewed my faith and myself. I don't know if I would be here. Um, and so doing all of that is what caused me to change my faith. It wasn't because even me coming out, um, that, that wasn't because of what I learned in seminary per se. It was because this is what's going to save my life and I want to be here. Mm-hmm. And this seems like the best way to be here is to do this. Yeah. Wow. That's really powerful. <laughs> That's very powerful. I might. <laughs> I'm just. I'm just taking all that in. Sorry. <laughs> That's. Um. I will always love you. How I do. Let go of a prayer for you. Just a sweet word. The table is prepared for you. Wishing you Godspeed, glory. There will be mountains you won't move. I, I really like the way you the way you put that and that <clears throat> pardon me I really like the way that you put it and that um, it was going it was really this sort of to use to use your 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 professor's term it was this holistic experience that you had 
Um, it was it was the seminary that was teaching you, and then it was your own emotions and your own mental and conscious and subconscious processing of all these things that that led you to find a way to repurpose and reconstruct your faith to find a way that's that is affirming of of life, like literally life affirming mm-hmm. in in your yeah. case. Um, yeah, I, I had no choice. I think that was, which is why, again, I think I was a little bit naive. But when I would begin to tell people, and at that point, I was very like, okay, I don't, I was still kind of in that world where, you know, maybe I could be gay and not necessarily, you know, do anything about it or whatever. And so I was in that very beginning stage. I was still trying to figure out things for myself. Mm-hmm. But when I would try to come at it as in, like, this is what was going on with me and this is what I ultimately did, it didn't really do much to change people's negative opinion about me coming out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> even, like, one of my closest friends at the time, you know, who I thought would get it, they were just like, well, you know, I mean, well, what if you were a sociopath? Wouldn't you want to get that changed, too? And that <laughs> type of thing. But I think for me, it was... Now, now I will say there were, if there was a moment in seminary when I realized that things were different, I would say this. It was another fraternity brother of mine. I was in a Christian fraternity, by the way. And so that, that's why I keep bringing that up. That was, that was my young adult Christian experience, being in um, youth, um, young adult groups in college and then in a Christian fraternity mm-hmm. for a number of years. Um, it was, you know, in seminary, you have to do, particularly to get an MDF, you have to do like a field education internship type of thing. And so the one I did before was really bad. And so I want to do a different one. And so I knew one of my fraternity brothers had a church in the area. And so I wanted to do one with him because he was cool. And, I, and you know, everybody liked him and it was, he was one of the cool guys. And so I wanted to do one with him. And he was very excited. I was excited too. And so he sent me a list of beliefs and things. And, and I thought that, you know, he, he seemed to me very, you know, you know, like he, he would, I thought that the way he talked about scripture and the way that I talked about, I thought that we could have a critical conversation together. And so I felt comfortable, at least in that regard, but reading the things and I, and I told him my thoughts, like, you know, said, well, do you believe that the Bible is literal? And and I was just saying things like talking a no big deal. I didn't think it would matter. But the way he responded to me when I told him about some of my beliefs, which, I mean, honestly, now we're very, very, still very beginner level liberal. Um, but that wasn't enough. And even the whole tone of the conversation changed between him and I. And mm-hmm. the way that he kind of, um, and this is all via email. So, of course, you know, at some point, you know, you can't really gauge for tone of voice and things <laughs> right. like that. Yeah. But the, the way the conversation went for me, I perceived a change. And that's when I felt, because at that time, I, up until that point, I thought I was towing a line. Yeah. I thought I was, very, I was towing a very, you know, moderate, fair to everybody line. Yeah. But I realized that even that wasn't enough in that the way that at least, I mean, he wasn't mean to me, per se, but it automatically, like, the conversation shut down. Like mm. the way in the way it shut down was just kind of like, whoa. Yeah. And, and I mean, that was before I really started digging into the depression and all the other stuff. Like, right. But that I think if that time told me right there, I uh, it was that point when I recognized that my beliefs were not really the same as those around me. Yeah. 
Yeah, that that sense of um, having, like the way you said it, being shut down. That that sense of it being sort of dismissed. That like your your point of view is being sort of dismissed in comparison to his. Is that like a sort of fair characterization? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I um I I kind of want to I I want to I want to go back to this idea that that you brought up as far as like repurposing reconstructing your faith in in a way that that could be that was affirming for you um i didn't um so i i want to just it sort of that sort of resonated with me just just in how i have sort of been able to to do something similar not around the same not around the same issues for me it was um i went the circumstances for me it was i was at a christian college um uh and it was 9/11 happened the first full week of my freshman year. Um so there was a lot of politicization that already happens in evangelical circles and I really resisted the whole um Christianization of the Iraq war. Um and then that plus all these textual things I mentioned really made me feel very isolated and sort of um not sure whether this could be something I believe anymore. Um and then I sort of was in that space and sort of depressed and disengaged for a few years. And then in grad school, I learned about um, creation care and a new way, like this, instead of this like dim view of the world that was so crappy and everything's going to hell, literally um, that, that God can actually redeem everything and, and like this new focus. And it actually did something similar for me and that it reinvigorated it. It made it, it made it affirming. It made life and faith as something worthwhile in pursuing and not feeling like it was faked or feeling like I was pushing against my own uh, beliefs in a way that would, you know, uh, affect my salvation or something. And so, um, again, totally different sorts of issues, totally different sorts of things, but that sort of spurred um, a new period of interest and and introspection and and engaging in faith in a new way um so once you once you were went through this this really heavy work of working through your depression um what were the sorts of things that you then uh, part of uh you mentioned part of it was uh was coming out to to the people around you coming coming out to yourself and all those sorts of things what what sort of uh what began to really uh, make you want to connect your faith to those issues and, and the other issues that became more uh, more alive for you in this new context? Um, I think it all started with the fact that I gave myself permission, and I rem- I'll never forget. I kind of gave myself permission at one point to say. And what I felt at that time was like, okay, I believe the Bible, that something is cool and different about it for me. Mm-hmm. I believe that Jesus is somehow important for me, but that everything else is up for grabs. And that I allowed myself the chance to think through and experience different ideas and, and all of that. Yeah. I think it's it's been a long process since then. And I think it's interesting because I think, too, I know— in some circles that I've been sometimes around theological growth and progress, there's this issue of time. And 
It's true. It took time. I mean, everything takes time. There's nothing that doesn't take time. <laughs> yeah. Um, at the same time, I can see at certain points in my growth where if I were more publicly active or more or saying more things in public, that even though I needed more time to grow, or maybe a better way to say it is this, is that certain understandings would come in time, not that I needed more time to grow. Mm, I needed to have, you know, I think that that's a different way to say it, because I think that there were still things that I thought and believed that were wrong, that when they were enacted in certain situations, they're still harmful. And if I were to have been called out on them, that that would have been right. Um, it wouldn't have been a factor of, well, oh, I need more time because, and I think that's the thing with faith. I think people don't realize that faith isn't just something, I mean, as much as we have this modern notion of my personal faith, which again, it's just, you know, a, a very, you know, that's a very, very modern idea of your own personal faith that you hold in your own pocket, like your own personal amulet. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that is something very modern, very Western very American, even if you want to push it. Um, as much as that is true, I think we negate how those, when I have beliefs about other people, that's not simple. Like, even if, if I never even walk past the state house, if I believe that someone being transgender is against God, I'm contributing to an environment where trans people are at or imperiled. Right. And so I don't get to play the, well, these are just my beliefs card because maybe you aren't signing a bill, but are you actively working to protect them? No. Right. Um, you know, and, and I think for me, I can see in those areas where I need, and maybe I think it's best to put the whole growth thing aside. As I was going along my journey, there were some stops that needed to be made immediately. And it took me time still to make those stops. But my own personal journey of growth should not come at the expense of someone else's existence. And I think that's where people get it confused. I like how Martin Luther King put it in the letter from Birmingham Jail, that time is like a mythical concept in regard to another man's freedom. It's always some other time and not now. Um, and so to get back to more of what you were saying, I think I might have dovetailed a bit from what your question was. Oh, no, it's totally fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but ultimately, it was it was allowing myself the freedom to think different things and then seeing al allowing myself to be heard. I think one thing that I will say that I had to instill and learn having to le unlearn from my childhood and my faith that I had was that to listen to yourself. What do you say? How do you feel? And so much of my life was spent on responding to how other people felt hmm. and how other people yeah. feel. And, you know, it was that way growing up. And then it was that way in church. Well, what does God say? What does God feel? What does God want? And at some point, you don't know what you want anymore. And you're listening so hard with another voice. You don't know what your inner you sounds like. You don't know how you feel. You don't know what you want because you spent so much time straining to hear what 
someone else has said that you don't know what your own voice sounds like. Um, and so learning who I was, learning what I cared about, learning what mattered to me is still an ongoing and in, in, intense um, progress. But I think those things and the fact that I was more in touch with humanity, I think that my experience was kind of separate from what people went through in terms of how I arranged my life. Some of that was my choice, others was just circumstance. And so actually understanding some of the ideas, the concerns, the fears, the passions that are more common for people to experience, um, I, you know, I think that helps me to begin to see people differently and move me along in the direction that I'm ultimately at. Now, I will say, though, that another big thing that was important for me was to deal with the fact that technically I did everything right. And so why is life so hard? And that sounds like a simple question, but that question of theosity, at some point, I had to confront myself with it, that what's going on? And I think that one little thread really... I mean, I really pulled at it so to get to the point where I am now. But then it was willing to ask the question, my faith is, my faith was supposed to help me. And it feels like if I'm being honest, that my faith is hurting me. How did this happen? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that uh, sense of faith is burden. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's supposed, the yoke's supposed to be easy, <laughs> but I, I think that that's a, that's definitely a sentiment that, um, I think a lot of people who listen to the show can really identify with, um, you, yeah, that, that conviction that you did the right things and yet here you are, uh, unhappy with <laughs> the result of all those right things, uh, all piled up. Yeah, they did. It was, um, you know, and it's it's an experience that I don't think a lot of people ultimately get a chance to go through. But I wish I wish that more people would. I wish more people would allow themselves to figure out who they are. I think that in particular, a lot of evangelical beliefs, they wrap you the chance to figure out who you are as a person. You're told who you're supposed to be yes. and you have to yes. kind of shoehorn. <laughs> You have to shoehorn yourself into that. And anything that does not fit within that um, experience, you have to do something else unhealthy with. You right. have to ignore it. You have to do it behind closed doors. You have to explain it away. But yeah. you have to, at the very least, you have to present. You, you don't get a chance to figure out who, even even the pitiful attempts, like things like, you know, uh, you know Rick Warren's... Um, you know, what is it even called Four Days of Purpose and all the other stuff where find out who you are in Christ and all of that wonderful. Yeah. 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 As much for as much diversity, quote unquote, as there is, it only goes but so far. It's that, you know, it's it's like you get to you get to decide which chocolate you could be in the chocolate box, which are also the bunch of chocolate. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's really what it is. It's like, you can be one of these types of roses, but you're still going to be a rose. Like, it's not really a chance for you to be anything different than what you're supposed to be. Right. Um, and so you can't figure it out. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> yeah, that 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 all sounds right on right on target. Um, so once you allowed yourself all these all these these freedoms, you you gave yourself permission to let things be up up for grabs. Um, did that? Did you continue? Did you finish seminary? Like, and what? And move on from there. What? Um, what was what was like the the next sort of career or academic academic career sort of steps you had, and what sort of um interests did you begin to develop? Like, what were the things that um because that is something about graduate school is that you you get the freedom to explore your uh, interests and passions in a way that most other sorts of uh, places places of business and that sort of thing you usually having to hit a certain hit a certain goal that may not be determined by you but graduate school oftentimes allows you that freedom um so that's my my larger question and just uh is really what what sort of an interest began to spring up as as you gave yourself this freedom um and then just sort of as you sort of explore that where did that lead you as far as um you know in school or or into ministry that sort of thing well, I finished seminary at Howard, and then I wanted to get a PhD, but I didn't think it was ready enough, so I went to Wesley Theological Seminary and got an MTS. Um, and then I applied to Howard again um, to get into the communications program, which is where I am now. Um, along the way, you know, I, and the you know, um, classic millennial tale of of the job market not being great. Um, <laughs> um, and, and in that time I bounced around denominations. Um, I was um, in the AME church, African-American Episcopal church for a while, was getting ready to approach ordination, um, the ordination process, but then stepped away. I was in the United Methodist church for a while. Um, but then I realized that I'd have to lie too much. And so oh, no. I, I, you know, I, so I left <laughs> Um, I, I was in the UCC church for a while and that went okay, but there were just other issues with where I was and things like that. So that didn't work out. And so after that, I decided to go on a church break. Um, and I allowed myself that church break to really one heal from the burnout. Mm-hmm. Cause I had really been trying and pushing to, to, to be Reverend so-and-so for years, mm-hmm. but then also to give myself the space to really think through some of my ideas and my concerns and give myself the space to think through them without having to tell someone something every Sunday morning. Yeah. Um, and so that was good. And I miss preaching. Actually, I want to preach soon again, but I think that's because now I have something more to say. I, I was able to really wrestle with some of my beliefs and my ideas, which is why, I mean, I'm leaning toward considering myself very much a religious humanist. Um, I'm still kind of figuring out what that means for me. Um, but I think for me, um, humanism allows me the space in the room to critique the things that theism falls short in. Yeah. So would you, if you don't mind, can we kind of dive into that a little bit? I, um, in school, I really liked uh, Erasmus, who was considered himself at the time way back when a Christian humanist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, I mean, secular humanism and that sort of uh, that sort of stuff. When I was, you know, 
considering walking away, that was sort of what I thought I would one day sort of describe myself as. Um, mainly because I idolized uh, Vonnegut. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but religious humanist, that's actually not a term I'm really familiar with. So um, so how, what, do, what, would, what does that entail, aside from uh, uh, critiques of theism? Well, you know, I'm still in the very early stages figuring that out. But I think that one thing is that a lot of humanists in the very beginning were religious in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's something that is often missed um, and that there is, yeah, there's secular humanism, but there's also religious humanism in that, whereas, you know, people who were of religious faith who still had ultimate belief in what humanity could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm still reading and learning before I get there, uh, before I can officially say that, but I, I can say that I have a great love for for it and what it meant for me. It Humanism made me feel like and particularly Black humanism. Um, I've read a lot of that. I've read um, William Jones, whose seminal work, um, Is God a White Racist, has is been really formational for me. Um, Anthony Penn, and a lot of his work has been formational for me. Um, and it allowed me, it, it showed me that my ideas about God were not strange, because what I was finding is that even a lot of people in my liberal progressive spaces were having trouble with my questions. And I found in their work that my questions weren't strange. And I think that I have, I got a, who wrote the article? It was an article that came out just right after Trayvon Martin and the, and the, and the verdict about um, his murder came out. Um, and it was the idea about Christian atheism and how there is no God in this situation. And the idea to, con- to contemplate God's absence, which I don't think we do enough. Um, I'll, I think yeah. that it's always we strive to find a way to make God there, but at some point, the effort to make God ever present makes God look worse. Um, and I think that that's something that people of faith sometimes have wrestled with because God just has to be there. And I think what's happening in my growth now is that. I don't necessarily need an explanation to make it okay. Some stuff just sucks. <laughs> it is bad. And there is nothing that anyone can do to make this thing good. There is no for all things put together for the good. No, it doesn't. This is bad. This is terrible. Even if something good happens after this or as a result of this, something terrible happened that can never be reconciled and we can't get it back. And well, what about the afterlife? We don't know about an afterlife. We don't. We have no idea about an afterlife. No one has ever said that there was one there. We don't know. It's faith, but we don't know. And whatever is out there has not had a demonstrable impact on us to the point where we can discuss it in a way that makes sense. Um, but that's what it has been for me. Like things about the cross, and particularly in um, thinking about issues like racism in the country and things of that nature. I think humanism has given me the room and permission to say, no, this is like, it, it gives me different tools to address different situations. And I don't really, I don't quite yet know how I'm going to sort it all out. But because I still love the Bible, I like Jesus a lot. Um, but personally, it doesn't necessarily matter to me if Jesus is God. It's like, oh, okay, well, what does that have to do with me? Nothing really. 
I'm very interested, though, that Jesus was able to have an understanding to go and and flip the tables at the temple or to talk about the Samaritan as a neighbor, mm-hmm. those types of things, or or to heal people and not charge them for it and to command his disciples to heal and not charge for it. Like those types of things to me are far, those resonate more to me because I can touch them. Right. Um, and I think for me, I need a faith that I can, I need whatever system or way I view the world, it needs to allow me to walk through the moments. It needs to allow me to exist and move through the questions. And, um, and I just think that at some point, at least with, with a lot of common Christianity, it leaves too many holes open for me. Um, And it doesn't really help. It doesn't empower me to make something of my existence on my own. And like today, like I have faith in myself in a way that I never had before. I I believe in my own personal power to impact the things around me. And I'm also aware of the limits of that power. Um, and I think both of those things are, are two areas where other Christians sometimes struggle in. <laughs> 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 you know, um, in those yeah. areas, it's like, one is like, okay, why do you, like, you really think that the person who you give all your adoration to thinks you're a worm? How helpful is that? <laughs> and on the flip side is that, okay, do you really think if because you all, well, I prayed really hard, all right. And I think that's the thing too, is like, you know, it's, you you get down your knees and you pray and you ask God to get your scholarship for school and you get it and God has been good to you. And there's some other kid like your friend Michigan who prayed for water and doesn't get it. Or some kid in, in um, Guatemala who's praying for safety and their parents are killed. And so why does God think your scholarship is more important than someone not getting shot to death or having water? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know it's these it's these things that i think we when someone sits back and thinks about it we really don't do a good job of addressing them um and i know for me the way i've gone with my ideas and thinking now has given me the room and the space to address those in in much more holistic and in my opinion humane ways that's great i um one of the through lines that I that I that I I found in these in these conversations through the show and everything is really that um the whatever God is <laughs> um whatever it is whatever we're referring to when we say God um it can handle our honesty and it can also <laughs> um and also we benefit the most um by approaching those things with honesty um, and if we're, you know, if we're not doing that, then it's not really worth the time to explore because you're just trying to struggle with your own, um, with your own beliefs and against your own beliefs when really it, it's better to work with them <laughs> or allow them to change than to let them just, um, slowly make you crumble underneath them.
um, you have you you mentioned that um, in us prior to us talking that that you are you have a lot of interest in some very big areas in the intersection of them all um, being uh, race, sexuality, gender, um, and how those things relate to Christianity and religion overall. Um, what what sort of things are are you and are you exploring through your work either at school or elsewhere um that that engages those those questions and how they interrelate well one i'm kind of in a retooling phase right now um with how i approach it and my approach with a lot of these i know i did a lot of work well, well not necessarily a lot but i started doing work that's talking about inclusion in African-American traditional churches. Uh, I thought it was, I think it was good work. And I've done a lot of speaking and stuff on that um, point as well. I, my shift, I, I focus, I'm, I'm saying it backwards. <laughs> I've shifted my focus a bit um, in that because I want to center black queer voices. And I think the way that I did it before kind of made it as in, here are the African American, you know, here are, here are traditional black churches and how can everybody be a part of them? But then I realized this in some of my experiences that I want to flip it. And I want to I want to highlight the stories of the queer people who are already there in their various ways and not particularly have my work hinge on I don't think I don't want my work to hinge on it being successful only if inclusion happen. And I think that also reflects a personal shift in my life because I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily need every church to change. And I think it also impacts my view of the church and how I, I, I personally don't think that if, if you're a church and you actually work to work against, and this is for all churches, but if you're a church that somehow works against, you know, the existence of other people, then you don't deserve to exist. <laughs> um, and so it really, it has changed my focus. And it's like, well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not, maybe I, I, I it just, it, it's, it's a shift. It definitely is a shift. And I think for some people that shift might be um, too drastic um, to take. Um, and of course, I mean, that's me recognizing all, that Christianity has means to people and the cultural ramifications and all of that. I, I understand that at the same time realizing, well, okay, what about the cultural realities and ramifications about the people who you demonize? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it seems to be totally okay that they're destroyed, but you can't be, you know? Right. And I mean, yeah. I don't, and I don't want like people to like literally die, but I'm yeah. not invested. <laughs> I'm just not invested in preserving institutions that, put forth such effort to see me destroyed, whether right. it's a basis of my, me being black, me or me being gay, any combination of those, I'm just, I'm not interested in using my efforts to rehabilitate places that would take my own air away from me. Right. Um, so, it's <laughs> <just> not. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I, I am, I, I I totally agree that the, those institutions do not deserve to be propagated any longer. <laughs> like the the ideas that 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 fuel them and the inertia that they have, you know, they they don't deserve to be propagated. And I, I think that um, a lot of people that 
were were had the privilege of being comfortable um prior to uh, the election and everything like that are sort of are becoming more aware of it so um i am cautiously optimistic of that and i hope that you know with consistent focus that that remains the case um that that people are aware and become more cognizant that that sort of um in any sort of institution that that demonizes and as you as you said demonizes as well as threatens another person's well-being in life does not deserve to to continue <laughs> um just and c- certainly not just because there uh, there's history or tradition that's not sufficient <laughs> it's not sufficient um, there's lots of traditions that are terrible <laughs> like slavery was a tradition um you know racism it's a tradition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like these are these are traditions that we will be much better off if they did not exist. And so that that's where it's like, well, it's, it's tradition. It's like, well, what 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 does this tradition actually do? <laughs> you know, like, like, what does it actually do? Right. Does it actually is, <laughs> like what does it do, and who suffers because of it? Like, and I think those are the things that can take into account, and is that it's. When you do that and you see it's like, oh, okay, well, like I'm not invested. Like it doesn't mean that traditions are bad in of themselves, but I'm just I'm not interested in preserving traditions that ultimately demonize me and 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 dehumanize me and that right. um, humanize other people. Like I'm just not I'm not invested. And I think that that's what has kind of changed the shift in my research mm-hmm. is that I'm not invested in rehabilitating a place that does not want to see me live in ways that matter. Right. Um, And I think that goes for any type of church or religious institution. Um, I'm just not interested in that anymore. And I I, I was at one point, um, but I think that my energy is better spent working with the people who are trying to do that work. Um, and, and other in building up my, the communities that I'm connected to, I think my energy is better spent there. Yeah. Has that, have, has that change in, in your opinion and the, the way you talk about things, um, publicly, uh, on online and elsewhere, has that brought you into conflict with anyone? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I've been accused of being one of the angry queers, the angry gays, um, on one of the people who you know, um, want people to change yesterday and that change takes time and everybody's not going to be perfect. And I've been accused of those things. Um, I think those accusations are unwarranted, but I've been called of those things. I'm just not willing to, I'm not willing to pretend that something is a way that it's not, particularly when it's at the expense of other people. Um, and I just, I'm not willing to do that. Um, yeah, I'm just not. I think also it makes a difference. I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. We're talking about specifically like the church. There are some formative memories of church that I personally do not have. And I've also had enough experience in other areas of life that I don't, church isn't the only place where I have interaction. Right. Yeah. I have many other things that I've done, and a lot of people in the church circles that I've been a part of 
haven't really done these things. Like I've not only been a part of church, but I played tennis. I did martial arts. I used to act. I would travel and sing. I would do all these types of things um, through, you know, college and even after. And so I have an understanding of the world Mm. and of other people that if the church were to disappear, I would still have other people. And also I don't have these deep formative memories of learning how to speak at doing an Easter speech or doing a children's whatever. I don't have those. And a lot of other people have those. And so when I talk about church and religion, and it's something I have to keep into my mind more, when I challenge church that directly, they sometimes they feel that those things are coming under threat. And so what a, actually a, a friend of mine has said, and I think he's correct, is that we have to start being honest about why church matters and why we resist the things that we do. Is it out of faithfulness to God? Well, yeah, on its surface. But what's really true is that you like the choir. <laughs> yeah. And what's really true is that you get a sense of belonging here that you don't get anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And that you have deep memories here that have made you who you are and that you get you you have, you know, you have fond memories of this place. And so if anything, even if it's for the common good, anything that seems like it might threaten the validity of this in your life, you're going to throw a fit. Um, which is natural. I think that's very natural as very human. I just think that we have to at some point get over that. And the idea that me critiquing something doesn't necessarily mean that it has to all, it, life is a mixed bag. It doesn't mean that the good things that happened to you did not happen. But it also doesn't mean that your good things are good enough at the expense of someone else. You can have your good, like we can still have Easter, Easter speeches. We can still have, you know, solos and, and, and programs. We just don't need to have them at the expense of having a predatory pastor or being anti-LGBTQ or anything like that. We don't have to have that. We don't, we don't have to have those. And we can make those decisions instantly. Like, we can make this happen now. Mm-hmm. Um, we can really make this happen. If we wanted to, we could make this happen. We don't. We don't want it. And I think that's what it comes down to. It's not, oh, well, it takes time. No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, I mean, like, <laughs> like, like we can do this now if we wanted to. Like, we can make this decision now. We could do this now. I think one thing, if anything, what, at least what the, the era of Trump has shown me, is that one, change that can be this imperiled probably isn't change. That's one. And so I, I like to see change, and I'm just using it to correct theology. Like I want to see change that runs deep, that you can't just change that exists whether you're there or not. Mm-hmm. Um, that as soon as Obama got up and left, so many other things were under threat. And I don't, I don't say that to negate the, the, the things that he's done that have advanced certain issues. I, I'm not negating that at all. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily, in every situation, his fault for that. Um, but change that could be, that could disappear as soon as you leave the seat, 
probably isn't the type of change that I want. I also recognize that if you could look at that power, all they said is, oh, we want to do this, and they did it. So if you can do evil that quickly, why can't we do good that quickly? Why does good have to be deliberated about and considered and mold and all of this other stuff? And I'm not saying that we don't have to have conversations around certain theological things. I'm not saying that at all. It's just that it didn't take much. Trump has been a president for barely a month, and look at what he's done. Right. Imagine if he wanted to do stuff for good. Yeah. Man, that's good. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see him. I'd like to see him try to do something for good. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd like to bring it back just uh, as, as sort of one, one final question for you. You mentioned that you, um, that you do want to highlight black queer voices. Um, are there any that, that you could uh, point uh, people to that are, that are either online or in books or elsewhere that people could, um, that people could benefit from hearing? Well, I will share some books. Um, well, well, let me say this. I'll say two parts. One, I have plenty of things I could give, but I'm not going to give them. And here's why. A lot of us are trolled very heavily. Um, and a lot of us go through a whole lot. A lot of us don't have a lot of money. A lot of us don't have the same type of family connections or resources and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the best way to support Black queer Christian voices, well, Black queer voices in, um, generally, but if we're talking specifically about Black queer people in the church, the mm-hmm. best way to support them is to give them money, protect them emotionally and physically, and to advocate for them to be, advocate for their full inclusion in church spaces. That's how people can help them. I'll say it again. <laughs> Give them money. <laughs> protect them emotionally. Prote- stand, you know, stand up for them emotionally and physically. And advocate for their churches to be fully inclusive. That means if your pastor says anything remotely homophobic, call them out. It means to make sure, you know, that like, it, you know, just to make sure that they are materially taken care of. Uh, with that said, in terms of books, um, Pamela Lightsley um, wrote the book. Am I saying her last name right? I hope I am. Um, but she wrote the book Our Lives Matter, and it's a womanist um, um, interpretation, womanist theology of Black queer lives and Black church. I think that's a great place to start. Um, another book I would recommend. Now, this she um, is from Kelly Brown Douglas, and it talks about sexuality in general and sexuality in the Black church. And so um, this is a voice that I think started a conversation for a lot of people. And so I would strongly recommend that. Um, Trying to think what else, what else, what else. Um, There's lots of blogs, I would say, too. Look um, Look at blogs. I think Believe Out Loud has a lot of blogs there. And I've written on Believe Out Loud myself. So look that up and look at look at some of the things that are written there. Um, hearing from queer voices that are Christian, particularly there's a number of black queer Christian voices there. Um, if you just do like a brief Google search and do black Christian gay voices, like you, you, you there's there's a lot that's already there. It's just usually glossed over. 
Um, and I think that's a good place to start. And if you see these people, find their names, support them. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of them might have like a Cash Me app or PayPal something. Run them five dollars. Run them twenty bucks. You know, or if you have an event um, that you have that or you know of, fly some of these people out to be on your panels or to speak um, at you know and to do some of these things like like and, and you know and get, uh, allow them to use their work, um, allow them to you know allow them to talk their stuff and 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 do their dance so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, um, utilize well not not utilize them. I don't want to say like, like, you know, like we're tools, but there are people out here who have been doing the work and can do the work. Um, and I'll say this though, if you're going to engage them, engage us, I should say, um, do so with the under, like really do an inventory and check to see how, how invested are you in seeing change? And if you're not willing to really see change, um, then probably just keep going. <laughs> um, and that's just me saying it's like you know, and I and I mean that. I mean I've had these conversations with lots of people, and I've I, not as long as many others, but I've done the inclusion work enough to really have, you know, really have an understanding of inclusion and allyship and all of that stuff. And while I appreciate. I understand the idea behind allies, but if you aren't going to really, like, don't just say you like me or like a picture of me and my partner on Facebook or put a post, but if there is a men's day, like I said before, you like, like when I was talking earlier, like if there's a men's day and you say, hey, there's no gay people on here. Can we invite a gay male Christian to talk to this? Invite one. Advocate for one. Even if you lose, make some noise. Mm-hmm. Like make noise for us in places where we can't get into, where we're locked out. And it doesn't mean that we're voiceless because we have a voice, but you're in a room that I'm not in. And so I need you to talk and yell for me. I need you to do that on my behalf in places where people aren't listening to me, but you have a microphone. Right. That's, that's great. And uh, th- thank you. Um for all of that i think but i mean having that knowledge of of these the the struggles that you face and the the sorts of support that is good to provide um is great <laughs> thank you for for all of that um where verdell where can people find you online well i'm in the process of building where you can find me online all right um, so don't worry so all of that is still up in the air uh, what about what about on twitter i think you're a solid fellow on twitter so oh, um uh, you can if you can follow me at mr underscore right away that's w-r-i-g-h-t-a-w-a-y um you can find me there follow me there um don't get too excited because i uh, <laughs> I don't do I, I don't do my religious stream of thoughts as much. Maybe once in a while. I used to do them all the time and everybody loved them, but now I don't do them as much. I've kind of calmed down with that because I realized <laughs> that people were I realized I was like, wait a minute, I'm giving away my material for free. I'm just sitting here giving people all these ideas. So if you follow me there, don't get excited. You might once in a while it's between that and tennis tweets and me. <laughs> and just a random commentary about things that you probably won't get, you know what I mean. So, it, sure, you know, yeah. 
or, or pop culture or whatever. So <laughs> don't get excited. What I really would like, though, um, like it's, um, my friend and I are starting a new podcast. Yeah. Um, talking on um, the Dell and Jess show. And so it's about two black people who were, you know, formerly evangelical themselves. And, and we talk about like Christian events and, and all of that type of stuff with, you know, we're talking about it honestly, but also with humor involved. So um, run and follow, um, I would say run it and follow um, Dell and Jeffs on Twitter. And that's Dell and and is fan out. So Dell, D-E-L-L-A-N-D-J-E-S-S on Twitter. Um, we haven't released our podcast yet, but we'll be sharing some things on Twitter. So Awesome. Great. Yeah. Well, I would say people go, if they, if they like what they hear, from me in this regard, you can hear more of it by following me on Dell and Jess. Great. Awesome. For Dell Wright, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it too.